Grace of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. Did God create the universe or become it? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, contains a passage that explains the essential truth that creation is a process of becoming. The universe is not separate from God, the Creator, but a part of Him. Even as of our own dream creations during sleep are, figment, are figments of our own consciousness. God's is the life, God's the reality. Not a melody could be composed, not a poem written, where the melody and the poem are not already there, simply waiting to be expressed. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth on darkness, and darkness comprehended not. Ego-directed desire is, the, is like a static. It distorts the radioid message of infinity, but the pristine impulse from the divine, undistorted by limitation and delusion, is the life that gives rise to all that is. As the seventh chapter of the Bhagavad Gita states, I am the fluidity of water, I am the silver light of the moon, of the, and the golden light of the sun, I am the Om, chanted in the old Vedas, the cosmic sound moving as if soundless through the ether, I am the mainliness of men, I am the good, sweet smell of the moist earth, I am the luminescent of fire, the sustaining life of all living creatures, I am self-offering, in those who would expand their little lives into cosmic life. O Arjuna, know me as the eternal seed of all creatures. In the recepted, I am the reception. In the great, I am the greatness. In the glorious, it is who I am the glory. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, oh, Morning and welcome to Sunday service. My name is Atman. This is my wife Bhakti Mark. It's our pleasure to share our service with you today. Especially want to welcome those who are with us as visitors or guests here at the Expanding Light, whether it's the yoga teacher training or the group that's here to create new habits in the new new year, or just on personal retreat. I'd like to start with a prayer demand from Yogananda's book Whispers from Eternity. <clears throat> o Father, may I behold Thee above, beneath, behind, around, wherever I turn my gaze. Train the children of my senses never to stray from Thee, who dwellest at the heart of everything. Turn my eyes inward to Thy changeless beauty. Attune my ears to silence, that I might hear Thy subtlest music. Breathe on me the heavenly scent of Thy sacred presence. Orient wise, I will worship Thee placing the candles of my five senses on the altar of my love. Thus I will contact thee in the first pale shafts of dawn, absorb thee in the bright light of noon, expand in thee with a hidden glow of twilight, and merge in thee in the silver moonlight. Always will I keep a light on my inner altar, the mystic taper of my love for thee.
So each year at the beginning of the year, we come around to the readings in the rays of one light that set us back in a firm foundation in the cosmos of what is this all about? Where do we come from? Why are we here? And it's, I love these parts. So <laughs> the cosmic gases, it's, it's just, it's so thrilling to contemplate, but it's, it's also extremely important to have that base of the understanding. So I want to talk a little bit about that and then ways we can bring it down into our life. So we started with this last week with uh, Jyotish's service. We talked about the word. The word was God. The word manifested through the vibration of Aum. This week, the focus is more on the light. So there's the unmanifested, undifferentiated, eternal one, the Satchitananam, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss that manifests, it vibrates itself out into creation. And that vibration creates sound. It creates light. It's the vibration of Aum. It's that light that pervades all the universe. And that's what moves out into the world and imbues itself at the heart of every part of creation, every material piece, every single atom has a speck, a part of that vibration, that indwelling oneness within it. And this is very different. This is one of the sort of revolutionary things that Jyotish mentioned last week that Master brought, that is not God separate from creation. God is in creation. God is in every single part of it. And that's a very revolutionary concept for many in the West, because we tend to think that life tends to come from a combination of chemicals or a uniting of, a, of two cells. But that's backwards. The life is, a, is the cause. It is not the effect. The life starts in that seed and moves outward to create all that universe. So from the, the very heart of our being, that spark of life, and in him was the life, and the life was the light of men, that light that animates the bodies that moves into existence. And that means that every, everywhere is a center, is that center of the divine. As he says in the autobiography, Yogananda said that it's center everywhere, circumference nowhere. You can really know the universe by going back to the center, not by looking out from the outside. And what is life? Life is really nothing more than conscious energy. It's that conscious energy moving outward into manifestation, into material manifestation. And if we want to know that life, if we want to know our own nature, we have to start back at that center, back at that in, indwelling oneness, at the immortal Atman, which is inside of all creation, that indwelling soul that is waiting to manifest. Now, what do we do with all that? You have to understand a little bit about the creation. All right, so there's God is in everything, in every indwelling atom. But God is not manifest equally in all those different atoms and all those different things. In, in the minerals, the Vedas say that the God sleeps in the minerals. It dreams in the plants, starts to awaken in the animals, and then is, has a potential for fully awakening once it reaches the human level. But there's a vast difference in the way that manifestation, the way that the visibility of it or the, the, how it comes out between the minerals and the humans. And there's also a huge difference between those who start to awake or most of humans that aren't even starting to awake and those that are fully awakened. Uh, Kriyananda says it would be fair to say that there's as big a gap between the, the rocks and the humans as there are between the humans and those awakened souls who have realized their oneness. So there's, there's a long spectrum here to go, and there's, everybody has a little bit different prison. That, that 
that internal being, that spark of the divine is really locked up in a prison cell. And if you're a rock, your prison cell is sort of on the lowest level of the dungeons. There's no light. The walls are thick. There's no sound. There's no movement. There's not even anybody coming to your cell. You're just there. <laughs> when you're a plant, so when you level, you move up a little bit, and you might get a little bit of a window in your cell, and there's a little bit of a light comes in, and the plant, you know, sort of turns toward the light, and plays out its life, plays out its life cycles, not incredibly aware. Sometimes there may be some awareness that there's other cells on this cell block and that there's other plants here and there might be some interaction, but it's a pretty patterned existence, a pretty, as Luther Burbank said, it's the, a very long, broken habit, unbroken habit through centuries that the plants follow. Well, then you move up to the level of the animals. Now, this is where it gets a little bit more interesting. The animals start to realize that there's, you know, there's other things around there. There's other prisoners in this prison, and uh, they can sort of hear things going on. And they sometimes get out into the prison yard and mix with other, other animals and start to see things and interact. But, you know, generally, they're, it's still pretty conscripted. They don't really see outside the prison wall. Matter of fact, they don't know they're in prison. They just are going through life, and they're pretty happy. It makes it, it makes it pretty easy for the jailers. They don't have to spend a lot of time on security, and just they're there doing what they're doing, and it gets a little chaotic sometimes, and they interact, and but largely it's just a contented prison population playing out there, <laughs> playing out there, their thing. Okay, then we get to the human prisons, and this is where it gets really interesting, because for the first time, the sense comes in that there's something wrong here. I'm suffering, dukkha. The suffering comes into it that I'm in prison. There's something wrong. I shouldn't be having this. There's, there's, I need to get out of this. And we need to switch the metaphor a little bit here because the human prison is a little bit different than the other levels of prisons. It's more, it's more on a, it's more like a dwapara prison of energy. So instead of like thick walls and things, we're kept in by these energy fields. And I like to envision it sort of like um, the cartoon carrier pig pen in, uh, in Peanuts. I don't know how many of you remember that, but we have these, he had this, you know, he always walked around with this cloud around him. Well, that's sort of like us. That's our prison. We walk around with these clouds. Clouds of what? Clouds of our own desires, our own limitations, our own ego identifications. It's an ego, that soul, that spark of the divine identified with something confining, something small. So we have, you know, here we are in our little prison bubbles, and we get to interact with other prisoners. We get to out, get out quite frequently and run around with them, and, and we start to think about how I could make my little prison cell better. And if I got more food, if I could get his rations, I, I'd be happier. And if I got a better, you know, instead of this straw pallet in here, if I got a cot, that would be really good, and then I'd be much happier in my prison. And so we start, you know, rubbing up against all the other prisoners and we get into all sorts of trouble. Like uh, sometimes we start, uh, as I said, you know, stealing from the other ones and getting the material things. We get into this whole thing. If, if I could just organize all the other prisoners and get them to do what I want. So like when we went out into the yard, we all marched in step and then they could all bring food into my cell and it would be perfect if I just had this power. So we get into that delusion. We get into the delusion that, 
you know, just, you know, I need to make myself more comfortable. We get into the delusion, and this is, this is moving on a little bit. We start sensing that inside that pig pen cloud of the, of the, of those other prisoners, there's something in there that appeals to me. And we start feeling this attraction for other ones of our prisoners. And we start trying to connect with that. And, and we start butting up against their little prison walls. And sometimes it works. And sometimes, you know, we get a little bit of a connection going. But oftentimes it gets pretty complicated when their delusions and static of all their delusions meet our static of delusions. It, it doesn't always work. Sometimes we fly apart. Sometimes we come back together. But it's, it's, it's not usually all that pretty. And it's not really what we want. It still doesn't get us back to that glimpse because we've started to feel this glimpse. We've started to look around and we start like every once in a while you look through this cloud and you see the sunlight out there and you realize, wait a minute, if I could just get out of this prison yard, if I could just move beyond this, if I could just get to something that's resonating with that spark that's in me, that's what I want. That's where I want to go. So we start thinking of all different ways to break down our prison cell through various intoxicants, for example. Maybe we start taking drugs. See, that'll, that'll like, you know, the, the shield will go down as soon as I start taking enough alcohol or drugs or forget my suffering. Well, we throw ourselves against our walls for a while and we fall back on the floor and it doesn't really work. And then some of us realize that, wow, you know, what I really want is to be calm and peaceful and joyful, and I'm not getting that when I'm out in the yard with the other prisoners trying to organize them or trying to get more stuff in my cell. It's when I'm quiet and when I sit down, and then, you know, this cloud seems to dissipate a little bit, and I can see the sunlight better, and I feel something. We start maybe opening these little channels out through our prison walls, and we start seeing the sun, and we start experiencing that, that oneness that's around us. And then through a very long process, we gradually be quiet, we let the walls fall down, we let those vibrations dissipate, and we start to connect with what's outside. And occasionally, we get, you know, sometimes, see, there's, there's, we never talked about who the guards are in this prison. Well, there, there, there is this conscious force outside there that's keeping all this going, but it's also a benevolent force. And every once in a while, it'll toss in a book into our little prison cell <laughs> when there's a hole big enough. And so the book comes in, you read this, you go, wow, you mean there's a way out of this prison? Whoa. And so we just gradually accept where we are. We calm ourselves. We let those walls move down. And we start to experience these channels, these movement to the outside. We start to move beyond that. And we start to connect with another piece of that, that immortal oneness that's part of us. And through a very long, gradual process, after accepting, after compassion for our fellow beings, after being in this, we gradually can move out of the prison. Sometimes we have to come back into it. But once we've gone beyond the walls of the prison, once you've seen that, you know where you're going. And it's not so bad being back in the prison. And you just keep moving in and out until at some point, we reach liberation and we've actually get ourselves out of that prison and the little spark that is in us gets back to that big spark. So that was an image for the little soul and getting back. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about what, what are the implications of this in everyday life? What if, it, what if we really 
started living this truth and more and more people in today's society started realizing that, yes, we are a part of the divine. Yes, the divine creation is within us. Our goal is to break down these walls of ego consciousness, of self-identification, of moving outward. What would that mean with relating to the world? I mean, as Jyotish said last week, it was it's one of the revolutionary ideas that, that Yogananda brought to the West. Because so much of the West, we think of, here's God outside, here's the creation. Within that creation, human beings are special. We don't really have much kinship with the rest of creation. It's there for our use. And even those who think about that relationship with God, it's something outside. It's not a becoming. It's a reaching out for it. So if this is really truth, I mean, truth is one and eternal. It isn't voted into existence. It is. So if this is truth, as the masters say, what does that look like as it starts to manifest a little bit more in, in our world around this? And it is starting. I mean, we are in an upward swinging age where things are getting closer to the truth and things are starting to change. And we can focus in on some of those changes that are coming into manifestation. The first would be that this absurdity of secular fanaticism would dissolve. And again, we were just touched this week, the tragedies in France, that in the name of religion, of my God is better than your God, of you are an infidel, I am a true believer, I am saved, you are not. All that goes away when you realize that it's just we're all one. We're all sparks of this divine. We're all trying to do the best we can to get back to that oneness. Whatever path it is, the paths are many, the delusions are great. But compassion for our fellow beings, that everyone is, is equally divine at some level as we are, and they are trying to get back to that as well. It would just remove all this secular fanaticism and, you know, be it East and West, it's, it's all over the planet. It's everybody saying, my way is best. This is the only way. So we're moving in that direction, fortunately. And the good news is this is truth. And as we move closer to truth, people are going to have to leave those things behind. Another thing that would be very important, which would change, would be our relationship to the larger world of how, how we know and explore who we and what we are in this world. Right now, we're firmly anchored in a scientific, materialistic, reductionist paradigm where we think if we can remove ourselves enough and be focused in our observation and purely objective at looking at material reality through our senses, we're going to come to know what the nature of the world is. And this has certain advantages and certain success, but it's also limited in a certain way. If the reality is the cause is the life, the light, the inner vibration, you're not going to understand that by just coming from the outside, by continually trying to dissect into smaller and smaller pieces the material, which is the ultimate manifestation of that oneness inside. So what do we need to do? Does it mean we need to say, let's throw out the scientific method of observation and just all sit down and meditate? Not necessarily. I mean, we... People tried that for a number of years, and there are certain advantages to a, a rational, detailed approach. But what we need to do is to combine those and to change the paradigm and say, we're not going to know everything through dissecting the material world into smaller and smaller things. What we need to start looking for is that unification. We need to start 
through a process of empathy, of intuition, of love, start empathizing with the creation because everything in the creation has that same spark that we have within us. And if we can connect with that spark, we're going to learn a lot more about the universe, how to be in it, how to live in this world, and treat the planet probably a whole lot better. And Yogananda thought that this was a, I mean, Yogananda, I don't know if he thought, Yogananda just knows. Anyway, he knew this was, a, <laughs> this was an important point, and he actually dedicated a couple chapters in his autobiography to making these points. He also, and those are the two chapters, one about Luther Burbank, and the other one about Jagadish Chandra Bosch, who was a scientist in India. He also dedicated his autobiography to who? To Luther Burbank, an American saint. So Luther Burbank was, uh, for those of you who don't know, was a botanist, a plant scientist who lived in Santa Rosa in California in the early part of the 20th century and created many, many, many different new plants and varieties. He was able to do crosses. He was able to bring forth uh, better fruit, a better potato, better flowers, a rose. Quite incredible. And Yogananda went to visit him and just said he basically fell in love with a man because he sensed in him a true saint, someone who was truly in connection with this paradigm that within every plant, every flower is a spark of the divine. And to understand it, that flower has to be approached, that plant has to be approached with love, with empathy. And then the secrets of that can be teased out. And he was incredibly successful in doing this. It was also incredibly frustrating for his fellow scientists because they couldn't necessarily replicate what he was doing. He just says, oh, you know, you cross this one with this one and you get this. And they try it and they go, well, you know, Luther, what happened? I didn't get what you got. And the secret was that inner empathy, that love. He said, you know, I see the principles of organization of the universe, and it's from the plants up to the animals to the human beings. He, he wrote a book about the care and feeding of the human plant, and he had ideas about education that were very similar to Yogananda's that he exchanged with Yogananda. And he, you know, he was able to create a, a spineless cactus. And how did he do it? He said, well, I was selecting ones that had shorter spines, but the real thing was I went up to the cactus and I said, gave the cactus love, said, you don't, don't be afraid. You don't need your spines. You don't need to protect yourself. I'm not going to hurt you. And through this great power of, of connection between the soul of the cactus and the soul of, of Luther Burbank, he was able to create a spineless cactus. And he presented a couple of those leaves to the master, and they're growing in Mount Washington and, and also in uh, Santa Rosa. And he also, master also talked about uh, Jagadish Chandra Bose, which was a he was a physicist chain, trained in Cambridge at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century. He went back to India, taught college for a while. And then when Master was a teenager, when Master was a boy, he lived in Calcutta, very close to Master, and Master went to visit him. And at that point, he was just moving out of the college to form his own institute for investigation because he said, what I found and I've spent my life trying to prove through the invention of various instruments is there's no difference between the spectrum of everything from metals through plants to animals to humans. That the underlying principles, the underlying organization, the underlying response to consciousness, the underlying response to stimulus and, and pain, it's all the same. And he actually created these instruments, these amplification instruments, one called the crescograph, and the other one was a, a cardiograph, he called it. But he was able to 
put these onto like onto a piece of metal, and he would like take um, a chloroform and chloroform the metal. I mean, metal. You're chloroforming metal. I mean, come on, give me a break. But <laughs> he could measure the response that the metal shut down, the life force shut down in some of the same ways that a plant would or that a human would. And he was actually able to measure and show these things. And he experimented on many different things. His his work had implications for agronomy, for the study of human diseases. He said that we could take plants because the response is very similar in plants to humans and animals. Instead of experimenting on animals, we can experiment on plants and learn what's going on. And you could see the the, the pain that plants could feel when you when you poke up a fern, he could register that with a needle, he could register that pain. So his his uh, whole scientific work was showing this connection between the two. And Master you know, chose it. That's important for the future, guys. Listen up. I'm putting this in the autobiography here. So, and another one, another example that's, that's in our times or in America is George Washington Carver. He said, if you love anything enough, it will speak to you. How did he do what he was able to do through an empathetic relationship with what he was studying? So another uh, sort of an extension of this is our relationship to the natural world. So we're in, um, we're in sort of a bad situation with our planet right now because we've uh, objectified ourselves and taken ourselves out and we've figure we can do all these things, these things were put here for us, and we can use them the way we want, and we don't really have to worry about it. Well, there's a lot of problems which were coming to the fore, some of which are coming to the fore through objective study and classification and a reduction of science, but when you look at what really launched the conservation movement in the United States, what, what is it that really got people's attention? Was it these studies that saying, you know, the pollution is this and this? No, what it really was, the one, the father of the conservation movement in the United States was John Muir. What was John Muir's approach to this? He was a classically trained botanist. He was a genius and an inventor. But his whole thing was, I want to be out experiencing nature. I want nature flowing through me. I want to be part of nature. I want to feel the spark of the divine and the little fairy gardens planted by God that I see around the stream and the boulders and when I describe a, a chipmunk or a black squirrel to you, I'm in that black squirrel, and I've, I can write about that, and I can talk about that, and I can feel what that squirrel is feeling as he's moving through his life, or the water oozel. I mean, these are all very famous writings of John Muir, and those writings, that sense of communicating that divine in nature, that empathy that he could feel for nature, it sparked a movement in the United States, and more than anything else, it was his writings that led to the foundation of the national parks, that led to the, the protection and the preservation of nature, that because people could feel it, said, whoa, yeah, redwood tree. It's not just a resource to look at. It's a living, beautiful thing, a part of our creation. And, you know, at one point there was a, there was a famous mountaineer in Europe named Reinhold Messner, and, and someone was talking to, to Messner, and he said, you know, what happened in Europe? I mean, there's, there's hardly any parks, and it's all kind of developed, and, Master just said, you know, you guys had Muir, and we didn't. So that that way of relating to nature is an extremely important part. And it's it's uh, Barat Cornell, who lives in this community, has made it his life's work to try to take that sense of, of oneness with the divine, that sense of, of being able to 
feel empathy for nature, not just to study it. He's created all these activities. He's created a worldwide movement, which has had a, a huge effect in the world. And he's, he's still at it. He's, you know, he's, if you haven't seen his great latest book, uh, the um, Sky and Earth. Thank you. Uh, he's, a lot of the, that philosophy and those activities are put in there. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful work. It's a beautiful book. So those are just a couple of the things we could go on and on. I mean, a lot of what Yogananda came to bring, what Kriyananda brought was how do we make it real in our life every day, this, this fundamental truth that the divine is everywhere, that there's a spark of the divine in us just like there is in somewhere else. You could look at it in how you do business. You want to cooperate with people. You want to be their friends. You want to there is no, there can't be any competition because what am I going to do? Cut off part of the divine from me? No, you have to reach out and it'll work for everyone in that way of success. Creativity. What is the source of creativity? Is it jamming more and more information, more and more facts into the brain? No, it's getting back to the heart. It's getting back to that divine source. It's tuning into that oneness. And from there, that's the source. That's the cause. Then moving out into creativity. And of course, the, you know, I could go on and on. I mean, if you could read Swami's books, it's all about how do we take some of these fundamental truths and bring them into daily life. It's what the, the Dwapara avatar aspect. The, the master was a, a realized being who came for a new age. So he came also to help us liberate us. But part of his mission was to uplift consciousness in general. And it's sort of how do we start doing things in a way that's more in keeping with cosmic truth? And so lots of what Master did, what Swami did, speak to that. But obviously the most important for us, the one that we shouldn't ever forget, is that that indwelling light in us is where we are going. How do we get there? It's through meditation. It's through our practices. It's through communion with that light right here at the spiritual eye, opening that tunnel, moving it out. It's doing our practices. Yes, living in the world as if, the divine is there in the world. But what's the most important thing? What's the way we're really going to get out of the prison? What's the way you're going to break down those walls? What's the way you're going to get rid of your pig pen cloud? It's through meditation. It's through the spiritual practices. It's through focusing on that light within and following it out to liberation.